0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Isaac Jonathan Hovitt. I'm the lead pastor here at this church, and so glad that you have chosen to join us on the second day of April. The weather feels like the third day of March. Anyway, spring, I guess it is kind of coming Very fitfully. Yeah. I saw hail yesterday. That was bigger than most hail that I see here in Oregon. Yeah. Anyway, I'm glad that you are here. Well, um, over this week, which is called Holy Week, we began Holy Week this year, uh, Palm Sunday as every year. We'll join for Good Friday on Friday evening. I hope that you will join us then, and then for our Easter celebration. And this week, or this year, on Holy Week, we are going to be focusing on the the use of parody and irony within the Holy Week stories. And so you can see what I've titled these. Today, we're talking about the donkey parade. This will make sense. Yeah. (laughs) On... Friday, the mock coronation of Jesus, and then finally a week from today, death's demise. So I'm looking forward to unpacking these with you. Paul says that the message of the cross of Jesus, makes, it makes a mockery of the wisdom of the world. Actually, he says in Colossians that it disarmed and put to shame the powers of the world. And in doing so, the passion of Jesus, that is his, his final week, reveals the falseness that the world operates by outside of dedication to him, who is the only true king. Now, God has revealed himself in a way that confounds human understanding. And through the motifs that we will explore of parody and irony, we will be able to see more accurately. Um, in a few moments, you'll have a chance to participate with the conversation um, today. So if you have your phone with you, this number that's on the screen is the number that you will text with some responses to some prompts that I will give you. Um, that number will come back up, so don't feel afraid that you've missed it now that it disappears. All right. For the eighth time today, would you stand? <laughs> <All right. laughs> You are going to read the bold words as we read the scripture, and I will read the references and the words that are not bold. 1 Corinthians 1, several verses in 1 Corinthians 1. Okay. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the understanding of those who have understanding, I will confound. But we preach. No, no, no. Go back. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block to Gentiles, foolishness. For the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind. And the weakness of God is stronger. <laughs> okay. But God has cho- <laughs> <laughs> But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the insignificant things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. The word of the Lord. All right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this all fits with the motif yeah, that we are exploring. And quite honestly, we don't give our tech team enough credit all the time for all the... No, I'm honest. For all the work they do. And... nearly never make mistakes, which makes it obvious when they do because they're so great. And I mean that. So thank you for all that you guys are doing back there. Well, being a Jesus follower is all about joining his kingdom, his rulership, his way, and his kingdom is expanding. Praise God. As it expands, it is imperative that every follower of Jesus must go back to the fundamentals of what his kingdom is based on and how it advances. Today, we are going to reflect on Jesus' way of influencing the trajectory of history. It's quite different than the typical normative ways of the world from actually any other way. I think that it is common to think that if we get the right person in charge, we can have control of all the people and control how they think, how they'll act. (laughs) And I know I've fallen into this trap too. We think that the world really operates according to control. I felt called into leadership positions for most of my life. And when I was 24 years old, I was hired by a school district to coach 8th grade boys basketball. And now that I was in charge, I was going to lead the troops to victory. I was as demanding as Gene Hackman in Hoosiers is. I was as passionate as a fiery preacher. And I had a creative, offensive mind. I thought that I could muster my team to victory. Those Those 13-year-old boys had never heard a pregame speech like the ones I gave them. (laughs) Yes, I had position. Yes, I had influence. But I couldn't control 13-year-olds playing basketball. (laughs) Control. Politics are heating up again, aren't they? Aren't they just always? Yeah. I know. <laughs> I only bring them up because the account of the triumphal entry we are focusing on today is so profoundly politically subversive. It challenges every political orientation ever. We will discover today that the triumphal entry was a parody. So what's a parody? Parody is an imitation of the style of a particular writer, artist or genre with deliberate exaggeration for comic effect. We will discover today that parody actually help us helps us to see things as they are. In a way, in exaggeration, clarity about what is real is brought to our attention. So I'm going to show you a parody of a political ad. And we're all going to laugh because we will see the truth in it. There's a connection between humor and humility. Now, I really hope that nobody's offended by this. And if you are, you might believe too strongly in the political system that we find ourselves in. So this video is called Every Political Ad ever take a look
1: this election your choice couldn't be more important our candidate is in flattering lighting and full bright color their candidate is in grainy high contrast black and white spotted through a telephoto lens from behind a bush coming back from god only knows where our guy points at the horizon and holds a baby their guy doesn't have a baby their guy has a golf club the voiceover for our guy is calm Measured, bright. Their guy gets the lower register. And sometimes we slow down. Our guy has clean headlines and the beautiful lens flare America needs. Here's a scary graph over a photo of their guy awkwardly laughing. Snap zoom. Do you want a snap zoom like that in office? Here's a photo of our guy saluting military veterans. Jump cuts, flashes, static, aggressive colors. You can't trust a guy with graphics like this. Our guy gets stock footage of sunrises and an American flag. Their guy's flag is upside down and on fire. Intercut with overdue bills, war, and a crying baby our guy gets doctors and astronauts and stimulus checks flatline an eagle hurricane the statue of liberty crime scene tape ronald reagan ronald reagan a girl running in a wheat field to escape a dangerous predator wielding atomic bomb this election the choice is yours their guy or our guy inspiring slogan
0: We laugh because it confronts us of what we might be drawn into. Parody can be powerful for us. In many ways, what we will talk through today, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was a parody of the kinds of parades and spectacles that are even seen in our political campaigns today. Jesus' entry, it mocked the grand processions of military might And reminds us of what is eternally true. That the kingdom of God is rooted in humility, sacrifice, and service. Rather than power and control. Stanley Hauerwas, he says this in the intro to a book he has about the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. He says, what we believe as Christians does defy reason and common sense. But yet I believe what Christians believe is the most reasonable and common sense account we can have of the way things are. Jesus' donkey parody parade helps us to see through the unreasonableness of the typical ways of power and power accumulation and dominance. Jesus' way is quite different. Thank the Lord. Literally, thank the Lord. He taught us to exert service first. He didn't take up a position of power, but as the Son of God, he chose to serve all of us in humble love. I think it's very difficult for modern people to give up our illusions of control. Even we Christians can tend to see Jesus' servant leadership as a means to controlling others. We might say words like influence, but what we really mean is to dictate the course of other people's lives. Each year, at this time during Holy Week, we reflect on these profound scenes And we don't just remember that Jesus saved the world, but we remember how. We will see today that Jesus is not just challenging the people of his time, but also challenging us today. We live in a world where power and control are often seen as the ultimate goals. But Jesus' message is one of humility and service to others. He invites us, I think he's inviting us to let go of our desire for control and to instead embrace a different kind of leadership, one that is marked by sacrificial love and service. So, as we begin Holy Week, we look at this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which at first glance might look like a celebratory and joyous parade. And it was, in a way. However, as we look closer, we might discover the symbolism and imagery of this event are provocative and subversive. The crowds who welcomed Jesus in the city, they lay down their cloaks and their palm branches, symbols of submission and loyalty to a king or a conqueror. But instead of riding in on a powerful war horse, as a typical king or conqueror would do with his conquered behind him, Jesus rode into the city on a humble donkey, embodying a message of peace and servanthood rather than domination or power. This paradoxical imagery challenges our conceptions and understanding of power and authority. Jesus, as the king of kings, didn't assert power over others, but instead instead he chose to humbly sacrifice himself for the sake of others. And this reveals to us the nature and character of God who values humility, sacrifice, and love above all else. And so as we reflect on the triumphal entry, let us allow this to confront us with the power of humility. Let it confront us with the ways in which God's love transforms and redeems our broken world. We don't just focus on the fact that Jesus did save the world, but we focus on how. Because as it turns out, we, as Jesus' followers, are called into the same. So I'll give a brief backstory, and then we're going to read through The account. The nation of Israel had been set apart by God so that they might proclaim his name to the nations. The father of the nation of Israel, Abraham, was given a promise by God all nations of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And as God established this relationship with the nation of Israel, he formed them as a people. And eventually they became a group of people that we would call something like a nation. And God gave them land and his heart would be that they would represent him and he would dwell among them and they would be his people. He would be their God so that all nations of the earth would be blessed. But over time, the people of Israel, similar to our times, (laughs) wanted to do things their way and not God's way. And so God would enact judgment on them to help them to return. But they ended up accumulating not the, not the, uh, the perspective that God was their king and would lead them, but they began accumulating ways, the ways of the world, power and domination and empire. And eventually, as a result of rejecting him, they were sent into exile. Uh, at the time of Jesus, they had been brought From exile, and the people of Israel were again in Jerusalem or in the land of Judea, yet they were ruled over by Romans. So at the time, their heart and their perspective would be that one would come like King David and (laughs) rescue them again and overthrow their oppressors. Jesus came into Jerusalem, as we will see here, and they we're expecting that if Jesus indeed is this long-awaited Messiah, that he would be like David of old and come with the sword. They were in for a confusing week, one that ends up showing us what is actually going on. So at the end of Jesus' ministry, he's approaching Jerusalem, and that's where we pick up. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey there with her colt by her untie them and bring them to me if anyone says that says anything to you say that the lord needs them and he will send them right away say to daughter zion see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a donkey The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in highest heaven. So they're coming into, and there's this, essentially, this parade, and people are shouting, Hosanna, God who saves, son of David. They're seeing, here he is, and now he's coming into Jerusalem. To understand the subversive nature of the triumphal entry, it's important that we get ourselves in the shoes of the local Jewish people in the first century, Like us, as I was mentioning, they understood the the world to revolve around power and domination, with conquerors and rulers riding on horses as symbols of their authority. In Jesus' time, the city of Jerusalem was under Roman occupation, and the Jewish people were eagerly anticipating the arrival of the Messiah who would liberate them. Many would have been looking for this powerful military leader, who would have come on a war horse with an army at his back to overthrow the Romans. Instead, Jesus came into the city on a humble donkey, embodying the role of a servant rather than a conquering king. And this would have been surprising and provocative for people. This subverted their expectations of what a Messiah should look like, of what salvation should look like, or could look like. It was a deliberate contrast, deliberate contrast to the ways uh, and displays of dominance that they were used to seeing from their overlords and their other leaders. It's a powerful statement about the actual nature of power and authority. Jesus chose to ride on a donkey rather than a warhorse, And this challenges our assumptions about what true power looks like and invites us to consider that in following Jesus, we are to take up another way of leadership which is rooted in humility, sacrifice, and service. So this is AD 33. This is taking place. And the Jewish people are being confounded by it We'll see that they ended up largely, most of them, rejecting this kind of king and agreeing together that Jesus should be killed. Many of them rejected what Jesus was coming in like. If we fast forward to eighty seventy, so what is that? what's the math there? Is that thirty seven years later? Okay, thirty seven years later, we can see the consequences of people's refusal to embrace the humble path of service that Jesus offered. Despite Jesus' teachings on peace and nonviolence, many Jewish people continued to hope for a military Messiah who would overthrow the Roman oppressors by force. And this hope led to a series of uprisings and Rebellions against the Romans, which ultimately resulted in the destruction of the second temple in AD 70 and the exile of many Jewish people from Jerusalem. Again, the accounts of what happened in these uprisings are just horrific. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people slaughtered as Rome said, again, no, we are in charge. The lessons that we learn from the triumphal entry and the passion of Jesus and the way of Jesus continue to be relevant today. There will be 37 years later at some point. And as the world continues to demand that we believe in the methodologies of the world, that we believe that through political power that God will save the world, we will find ourselves in times of destruction when Christians, we, as we follow Jesus, are called into a different orientation, trust, and hope. We live, you and I, live in a world that continues to desire power and control and the commensurate ex- er, escalations of violence and destruction. As followers of Jesus, we are called into something different, one that is marked by humility, love, and service. May we learn from the mistakes of the past and embrace the true power of the gospel, which transforms hearts and lives through sacrificial service. I'd guess that for many of you who've heard teachings on the triumphal entry, this is probably a different angle. And it's the angle that I have chosen to take because I think it's truthful within Scripture, but also so powerfully relevant for the Christian today. I'm deeply concerned, continue to be, that we would grab on to the world's way and promises rather than the way. Of Jesus. So, now you get to text in. We're going to give you a little extra time today because I'm asking you three questions and this is probably a bit to digest. Here are the questions. How does thinking about Jesus entering Jerusalem in a different way change what you think about his power? Maybe it was a conflict. Or how does this confirm something? How does Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey confirm what we or what you think about power and authority. And the third question, let's move to some application. How can we follow Jesus' example of being humble and serving others even when the world thinks power and control are most important? Okay, you have four minutes and uh, give some responses and I'm sure we'll have a great discussion. Go!
2: Listen Ha 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 ha
0: Let, yeah, let's give it up for our kids. Good job, guys. How many of you are a little unsettled that we use kazoos and whirly whistle things? Yeah, good. I'm glad. I think there might be, I felt the tension. I was like, wait, this is Holy Week. What a relief it is to not have to believe in the power processions of this world. Ah, Okay, (laughs) all right. (laughs) Praise God, you guys gave a lot of good feedback and I'm gonna um, go through uh, some as we draw to a close this morning. So, a couple of conflict. First of all, people, somebody said, they had this question, how can we be humble to those that defile Jesus, destroy Bibles, and speak against Jesus and our beliefs? How can us youth stay strong in faith when all the world today is anti Jesus? It's a good question. Um, and I might come back to that. Um, conflict. Jesus was turned away with more power than others understand. When it comes to connecting generations, doesn't the Bible prove that even the youngest and weakest people can br- bring the most influential ideas? Why is that overlooked? Um, I'm not sure that, uh, how that is being overlooked necessarily, but I would agree that the Bible shows so many surprising examples of how God wants to influence the world. It's through a barren couple, Abraham and Sarai, that God gives the promise, the nations of the world will be blessed for you. It's through Moses, who had to escape persecution as a baby, that God would raise up. Moses, who had a stutter, the scriptures say, in weakness, it's Joseph who was cast off by his own family, discarded in a rage of jealousy that ends up being a key rescuing figure. It is David, the son of Jesse, who was <laughs> not even present when Samuel was looking to evaluate the possible kings that would come from Jesse's family. Because he was out tending sheep as a shepherd. Who is this? And it goes on. It's in oppression that Daniel had tremendous influence in his story. Resonates that God in weakness and in subversion and in surprising ways is bringing about redemption. Conversely, the Bible is in this The way, the weak way of God, the strange way of God is juxtaposed against normal, powerful figures. It's juxtaposed against Pharaoh, this man, might, and power, control over one of the most powerful empires ever known that God subverts with these two brothers, one of which had a stutter. The scriptures are juxtaposed. David and Saul, Saul who was tall and handsome and looked the part, but whose character wasn't there to match. And David, in his good years, he had his bad years, but in his good years, humbly chose not to kill King Saul, even when he had been appointed or anointed as king already, and Saul was persecuting him. There's something about the way of Jesus that is in that aspect of David's life. David didn't end well, but in that part of his life, he was embodying what the heart of the Messiah would be, who would come weakly. The people of Israel are always juxtaposed against these other powerful ruling nations and conquering big kings, names that we know only because they are the foil in God's big story of redemption. Names like Nebuchadnezzar, ends up being the foil against we, which we understand and see how God wants to redeem the world. It's through weakness and humility, and it's not through power and domination. These things actually have a very corrosive effect on the human soul. We were never designed to be in control. And then it is the powerful people in the New Testament that are juxtaposed against this humble, King, this man of little and no reputation, Isaiah proclaims that he will be, and he certainly was, as he was from Nazareth, as he was born in nowhere, Bethlehem, as he was raised in obscurity. This son of God juxtaposed against the really powerful people, the impressive people, the Pontius Pilate's, the King Herod's, the Jewish religious authorities, Some of them, we know their names only because, again, they are juxtaposed against this humble king, Caiaphas, who we'll read about. We know that name only because he ends up being the foil against which we see how it is that God intends to redeem the world. You've heard me say before that none of us would come up with a plan of salvation that includes a triumphal entry that is actually a mockery of the grand parades of the world we wouldn't come up with that. We wouldn't come up with Jesus being unjustly tried, the Son of God, and then going to the cross and dying. We wouldn't come up with these things, but actually when we get to be familiar with the arc of Scripture and the character of God that we see, we actually begin to see this actually makes sense because the world has lost its way trying to control each other, trying to amass human, man-made structures that promise to preserve us and to give us hope and a future and promise to give us the good life and in fact it only comes in submission to God and the only way that we would see that is God coming and dwelling and living among us so that we might see afresh the paradox of God's way a God who would die on the cross and man's way mankind that would kill God on a cross so yes yes I I see it is the humble, the weak, the young, the outsider who end up being the pivotal leaders and influencers in the world. And I hope that we normal people in little old Salem, Oregon, in the years and days to come when we are tempted again to align ourselves with the powers of the world, thinking that they can bring about redemption, would refuse and say no. I have one king. His name is Jesus. I will follow him in his way no matter what may come. That was the sermon embedded into the sermon. Mm. There's some applications here that I think are good to kind of wrap this Apply, keep our eyes on Jesus, stay humble, peaceful, loving, kind-hearted. Asking him for help if we start getting pulled into the worldview. Somebody else need help every once in a while? You know what the scriptures say? Ask God for wisdom and he will grant it. Reach out to him when you feel you're getting tied up in all that drama Another application. Okay, this is powerful, and I want to hear more about this story. Apply. Years ago, during the Civil War in Guatemala, which is a 30-year conflict that led to 256,000 indigenous people slaughtered at the hands of the government and the rebels, years ago, our missionary friends were met in the middle of the night with a gun at his head. The first words out of our friend's mouth were, how may I serve you? It disarmed the power of those seeking their destruction. It disarmed the power. Paul says in Colossians, talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The death and the resurrection of Jesus defeated all those powers which seemed to be in charge and gave us a hope that we do not have to believe in the power system of the world because Jesus disarmed them. He defeated them. Death thought it was victorious. The enemy perhaps thought he had won. But in fact, he was duped by the living God who came to die. So that all the powers of the world could be disarmed. And the reality is, we can live into that as Christians. And this story here, this small account from someone in our church, gives a real time or a real example of how profound that can be. The way of Jesus, he calls himself the truth. And that should arrest our attention all the time. There are not multiple truths. He is not one of the ways that salvation comes, but He is the truth. As Stanley Hauerwass said, it's profound, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Nothing else actually compares to the way that God has saved the world. Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. At the end of his ministry, right before this account in Matthew 19, Jesus says, But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem important or seem least important now will be the greatest then. Towards the end of his ministry, Jesus said, But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. When I proclaim this gospel to you, I have firm conviction that there is no other name under heaven in which mankind can be saved. And I'm also also firmly convinced that you and I are inundated with all sorts of false gospels and promises and hopes. And it is my firm prayer for you and I that we would be so rooted and grounded in the scenes of Holy Week that we would see the stupidity for what it is. And we would come back to trusting in what we can ultimately trust and which will always prove to be faithful. The transnational eternal kingdom of Jesus that is marching forth with kazoos that mock the ways of the world. With whirly gigs that say you've been duped and this is what is true. Do I have a witness in here?